0: I would like to welcome everybody to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship class. This week we are going to begin a series of teachings on the Biblical festivals. This lesson is going to be an introduction to the Biblical festivals. In studying the Biblical festivals, the first thing we need to ask ourselves, especially for believers in the Messiah who have been brought up in traditional Christianity who haven't been taught the festivals to identify with the festivals is why should we be studying the biblical festivals well to begin with the biblical festivals are in the Bible and all the Bible is inspired by the God of Israel through the Ruach HaKodesh in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. When we read here, all Scripture is inspired we need to understand that the New Testament as we have it today was not formally canonized when those words were written. So all scripture is a reference to what is called the Hebrew scriptures. And the Hebrew scriptures are known by an acronym of Tanakh. The acronym comes from the T in Tanakh stands for the Torah, the first section of the Hebrew scriptures. And if you get a Jewish published Bible, the next section of the scriptures is known as the prophets. The Hebrew word for prophet is Nevi, the plural is Nevaim. The third section is known as the writings, what is contained in the writings is Psalms and Proverbs and other books. The Hebrew word for writings is Ketuvim. If we take the, the T in Torah, the N in Nevi'im, which represents the prophets, and the K in Ketuvim, which represents the writings, we have the acronym Tanakh, which we use Hebraically to refer to the Hebrew Scriptures. The order of the Hebrew Scriptures is how Yeshua referred to them in Luke chapter 24 in verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the Torah of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. So, Yeshua made reference to the Hebrew Scriptures in the order that they appear in a Jewish published Bible today. What are some other reasons why? We should study the biblical festivals. Well, it tells us in Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 that the biblical festivals are a shadow of things to come. Notice to come is future the substance of them, the body of them, teaches us about the Messiah. Often in traditional Christianity, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 is quoted as a proof text of why we shouldn't be following the biblical festivals. Actually, I would say just the opposite. It should be a proof text of why we should. It says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or respect of a holy day. The holy day is a reference to the annual festivals. Or of the new moon, which is also a festival. Or of the Sabbath, which is also a festival. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of the Messiah. First of all, in verse 16 it says, let no man judge you. It doesn't say, don't do them and don't be judged for not doing them. What it's saying is, don't be judged in." how you do them because it is not written in the Bible in explicit detail how we're to celebrate these festivals. Guidelines are given but it's not laid out in explicit detail how we are to observe the biblical festivals. Traditional Christianity emphasizes in Colossians 2.17 the word shadow. It's a shadow meaning it's past. Keep reading. It is a shadow or a blueprint is really how you should see that of something to come. Colossians is written after the death of Messiah on the tree and we're told that these festivals teach us of something to come. If it's written after Messiah died on the tree and it's talking about something to come, what's it talking about? His second coming. The biblical festivals will teach us about the second coming of the Messiah which it says the body or the substance of... These things teaches us about the Messiah. In examining the biblical festivals and how they teach us about the Messiah, we will learn that the spring festivals emphasize and teach us about the first coming of the Messiah. The fall festivals emphasize and teach us about the second coming of the Messiah. How do the spring festivals teach us about the first coming of the Messiah? When we examine the events surrounding the death, burial, resurrection of the Messiah, the scriptures will teach and explain to us that Messiah died on Passover. He was in the ground the very next day, which begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Messiah was resurrected three days after he was put into the ground he would have resurrected on first fruits in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it links the resurrection of the Messiah with first fruits 50 days following first fruits is the feast of Shavuot or the feast of Pentecost this is the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter too. The fall festivals will teach us about the second coming of the Messiah. What are some of the major events of the second coming of the Messiah? The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead, the literal individual resurrection of the dead of believers in the Messiah, will happen on the Feast of Trumpets, traditionally called Rosh Hashanah, the head of the The year. In talking about the resurrection of the dead, traditional Christianity, when you speak of the resurrection of the dead, usually exclusively focuses on individual resurrection. But we need to remember that Israel the house of Jacob is in exile and in Ezekiel 37 it talks about there was a valley of dry bones and the question was asked can these bones live it says that those bones are the whole house of Israel and that they will come up out of the graves and come back to the land of Israel the graves is a reference to the nations of the world and Hebraic thought in understanding the definition of the term resurrection of the dead it not only speaks of individual resurrection will we receive our immortal bodies but the redemption of the house of Jacob from exile is also likened unto resurrection of the dead next Messiah will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives on Yom Kippur or the day of atonement if you will study what the scripture says about him setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives it will be using Yom Kippur terminology and then the Feast of Tabernacles emphasizes and teaches us about the messianic era so those would be the major events of the fall festivals and there's many details in addition to that big picture and still examining why we need to study the biblical festivals we need to realize that the festivals will teach us about the complete redemptive plan of the God of Israel. And it has an application individually in our lives as believers in the Messiah. Because Passover is all about leaving Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world in the world system. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and verses 23 and 24 that the reason why the God of Israel brought his people out of Egypt was to take them to the promised land. The reason why he saves us is to perfect us and he desires for us to be his bride. He wants us to be a people who will serve Messiah and be dedicated to the service of the kingdom of the God of Israel. So individually, the festivals will teach us about coming out of the world and the promised land is fulfilling the will of the God of Israel in our lives, fulfilling the calling that he has on our lives. And he has a unique calling and a unique task for each and every person, especially Believers in Yeshua as the Messiah. How can we make the link that coming out of Egypt is analogous to leaving the world and the world system when we put the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost whenever we accept Yeshua into our hearts and our lives? How can we apply that event to our lives individually and personally. That is because we are told in the scripture that each generation needs to see themselves. Each person needs to see themselves, that they came out of Egypt. We are admonished to do this by the apostle Paul and 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. And in First Corinthians, Paul is writing primarily, to non-Jewish believers in the Messiah. And in writing to non-Jewish believers in the Messiah, he says these words to them, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They did all eat the same spiritual meat. They did all drink the same spiritual drink. I want you to notice that Paul says, Don't be ignorant that all, he uses the word all five times. Don't be ignorant that all of our fathers did this. How does traditional Christianity view the Egyptian Exodus. Oh, that was something that happened to them in another book of our Bible that doesn't relate and pertain to us today. We don't identify with it. We don't associate with it. It's in our Bibles. It's a part of our history, understanding who we are but we don't personally identify with it. Paul says to identify with it. He says, don't be ignorant that all of our fathers were under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all did eat the same spiritual meat. They all did drink the same spiritual drink. Wait a second. All did this? Do you realize that that's not literally true? My father and my grandfather didn't literally come out of Egypt. Your father and grandfather didn't literally come out of Egypt. The Apostle Paul's father and grandfather did not literally come out of Egypt. So when he says, don't be ignorant, all of our fathers did this, that obviously is not literally true. So does he not know what he's talking about? Is he telling us a lie, something that's not possible? Or is he trying to communicate something to us that is valid through Hebraic thought but is not valid through Greek logical thought? Well, all of our fathers passing through the sea is, in fact, a Torah concept. And we all know our Bibles well enough to realize that when Paul is writing and speaking and referring to the Exodus and says don't be eager that all of our fathers did this that all that he was doing was quoting from the Torah right he's just teaching you Torah well in fact that is the case where in the Torah is Paul quoting and making a reference to it is in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verses 12 through 15 it says that you should enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath which the Lord your God makes with you this day that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself that he may be unto you a God as he has said unto you and as he has sworn unto your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Look at this, verse 14. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath. But the covenant and the oath that was made at Mount Sinai, is being made with two groups of people, with him that stands here with us this day before the Lord our God, and it's being made also with him that is not here with us this day. What group was Paul referring to when he said, don't be ignorant that you were there? Well, obviously, you're a part of the group that wasn't there that are supposed to see themselves as if you're there. You weren't there, but you were there. This is repeated for us in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 8. And you shall show your son in that day. Now, what period of time is in that day? In that day is sometime in the future, in future generations. Tell your son in, in succeeding generations. But Hebraically, the phrase in that day is an idiomatic expression for the Messianic era. So we'll still be telling our sons in the Messianic era that the God of Israel brought them out of Egypt and we'll be doing this in the celebration and the remembrance when we do Passover. And you shall show your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. But wait a second. Do you realize that the son in that day did not literally come out of Egypt but the commandment is to tell your son that he did come out of Egypt so it's not literally true so how can it be a valid commandment that's because it is a Torah concept it's a Hebraic concept that you are a part of the covenant that the God of Israel makes with his people if you are in covenant relationship with the God of Israel See, the God of Israel may have made a covenant with Abraham, but you could still be a part of that covenant, even though you weren't physically there when he made the covenant with Abraham. So we need to understand that the feasts were given for our learning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, but they are written... For our admonition, look, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The things that happen to them are admonition and instruction for those who are living in the end of the ages. Why would those in the end of the ages need the encouragement and the understanding of what the God of Israel did when he delivered his people out of Egypt? Why would the people in the end of days need to identify with that and be encouraged by that? If, as what is taught in traditional Christianity, that we're out of here and we miss all the problems. Well, we don't need to worry about what happened to them as an encouragement to us if we're out of here. Only if we identify with the covenant that was made with our forefathers. If we identify with the covenant, if we really see that we were at Mount Sinai, which is what Paul said to do, don't be ignorant that all of our fathers were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. And if so, if we all came out of Egypt, where did we go? We went to Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? A covenant was made with us and our forefathers, with those who were there And those who are not there. And so, what did we and our forefathers do? We broke the covenant. How did Daniel pray? I and my forefathers broke the covenant. How did Nehemiah pray? I and my forefathers broke the covenant. I sinned just as my forefathers have sinned. So, in sinning, what did the God of Israel do? He sent us out into the nations of the world guess what i am in the united states of america right now and if my forefathers were obedient to keeping the commandments of the god of israel you know where i would have been born and you know where i'd be living right now in israel but i'm in exile because my forefathers broke the commandments and i am an heir of those sins. And the promise of the God of Israel is that he's going to redeem his people from the nations and bring them back to the land of Israel. How do we understand him redeeming us from our being scattered in the nations? It's likened unto the historical Egyptian Redemption. So we need to understand what happened historically in the Passover because in the future we're going to have an event just like it upon whom the ends of the ages are come and it is going to be a parallel here in the end of days what happened back then. So in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, it also says, "...whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning." that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The biblical festivals were carried out in a literal manner. A literal people went to a literal place and they expressed themselves through literal services. It has a spiritual application. Everything that was done naturally has a spiritual application. It is for our learning, our instruction. So the natural was given to understand the spiritual. And 1 Corinthians 15, 46 and 47, it says, Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, afterward that which is spiritual. For the first man is of the earth, earthly, that's Adam, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. The second man is Yahweh from heaven, that is Yeshua. By studying the natural, we can understand the spiritual. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The God of Israel wants us to walk in the spiritual, eternal truths of His kingdom and have that heart relationship with him. He gave us the external to teach us the spiritual truths. There are four important elements and aspects of the festivals that in studying them, we need to keep in mind. Number one, all the festivals literally are associated and connected with agriculture. They're agricultural festivals. Number two, all the festivals are historical. They've, they've already been given by the God of Israel, shown how to perform them, but they are prophetic. They have a spiritual application, both individually and as it relates to the Messiah. Number three, all the festivals will teach about the redemptive plan of the God of Israel through Yeshua the Messiah and the restoration of all things through Him. And number four, All the festivals will teach about our personal relationship with Yeshua the Messiah. So as we study the festivals, we are going to examine them on an individual level and application and also as they relate and pertain to Yeshua the Messiah. Another reason why we study the festivals, the festivals are blueprints of the redemptive plan of the God of Israel through Yeshua the Messiah. And once again, we will reiterate, the festivals will teach us how we are redeemed from Egypt, which is the type of the world and the world system, by putting the blood of the Lamb, that is the blood of Messiah, upon the doorpost, that is our heart, which is the celebration of Passover or Pesach, and how we grow from children in the kingdom of heaven with a slave or a worldly mentality. That's what happens when we come out of Egypt. We still have a mindset of the world, the world's ways, the world's systems, and we have a slave mentality. And we come out of that into Messiah and we learn and we grow in full spiritual maturity by walking in the will of the God of Israel for our lives so that we can journey and fulfill our spiritual promised land which is associated with the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, which is known as the season of our joy. So if we're studying the feasts, what is the definition of feast? Leviticus chapter 23 verse 2 it says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my Feast. Notice when we read the word feast, it is the Hebrew word moed. It is the Strong's number 4150 in the Strong's dictionary. James Strong wrote a concordance where he assigned an arbitrary numerical value to every Hebrew word in the Hebrew scriptures and to each Greek word in the Berit Padasha or the New Testament. So the word feast here in Leviticus 23.2, the Hebrew word moed means an appointed time, a set time, an appointed time. It is also a reference to an appointed place and an appointed season. So it says these are the set appointments of the God of Israel. Now in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 6 it says, on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. This word feast is the Hebrew word hog, and it's the Strong's number twenty-two eighty-two. The word hog comes from the Hebrew root word hagog, which is the Strong's number twenty-two eighty-seven. So hog, which comes from hagog, means to move in a circle to march in a sacred procession, to celebrate, to dance, to hold a solemn feast or a holiday. So these are set appointments, moeds, of the God of Israel, and they are circular. They are to be performed on a yearly basis. Continuing on, in Leviticus 23, verse 4, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord. They are holy convocations. Holy convocation is the Hebrew word mikra. It is the Strong's number 4744. And the Hebrew word mikra means a rehearsal. So these are set appointments, moed, of the God of Israel, that are to be performed yearly, hog. And they are rehearsals. So you are rehearsing something. Well, when you rehearse, you rehearse for the day when you will actually be doing the real thing. You're rehearsing for the real thing. You're preparing and understanding and identifying with the real thing. By examining the Hebrew words regarding the celebration of the festivals, they are rehearsals of fixed appointments by the God of Israel that are to be performed yearly by a sacred assembly of the God of Israel's chosen people at a fixed time during a fixed time or season. Now, in traditional Christianity, when you would mention the biblical festivals... Probably one of the first things that's got to pop in people's minds is, Oh, those are Jewish feasts. Oh, those are, you know, a part of the Old Covenant. And for them, it's for those people. We've got to realize, however, that in Leviticus chapter 23, 2, it says... Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Jews, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation. Even these are the feasts of the Jews which I'm commanding them to celebrate. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. But you know what? That's what we have identified in our mind and we associate in our minds that that's what it says. But that's not what it says. You know what it really says? It says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of Yahweh which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. It says these are the feasts of Yahweh. Now, if you would announce to all the people in traditional Christianity that Yeshua the Messiah wants to have a supper, he wants to have a celebration, and he wants you to be there. Do you think the people will say, yes, great, we want to be there? If Yeshua is inviting us to a celebration, do you think they would say, yeah, we want to be there? Guess what? He already has invited you to a celebration. And guess what? Nobody wants to show up. These are his feasts. And we say, no, we, I'm sorry, we, we don't want to attend your feasts. We'll do our own feasts. And the traditional Christianity, by the way, they do do their own feasts. And so if these are the feasts of Yahweh, who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? These are the feasts of Yahweh. Well, once again, traditionally, when you're reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, what they call the Old Testament, most often when we read the word Lord in our Bibles, which is Yahweh uh, in the text, we automatically write in our little religious minds with our religious pens. We write God the Father. However, we need to realize that the festivals in Leviticus 23 are fulfilled by the Messiah, by Yeshua. It's Yeshua that died on Passover. It's Yeshua that was buried on unleavened bread. It was Yeshua that resurrected at first fruits. It's Yeshua that's got to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. It's Yeshua that's got to rule and reign during the Messianic era. So these are the feasts of Yeshua. He's fulfilling these feasts, not God the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus a curse. And no man can say that Jesus is Lord. And if I'm reading that in Hebrew, what's the Hebrew word for Lord? It's Yahweh. No one can say that Jesus is Yahweh but by the Ruach HaKodesh. Sadly... There are increasing numbers of people in the Hebraic, Messianic movement that is saying that Yeshua is not Yahweh. Well, uh, they must throughout their Bibles, especially what Yeshua himself proclaimed and what the New Testament clearly teaches. Now, the Tanakh teaches it as well, if you have eyes to see, because Yeshua said in the volume of the book, it is written of me. But this says that In order to say that Yeshua is Yahweh, you can't do that except by the Ruach HaKodesh. The Holy Spirit reveals that Yeshua is Yahweh. So if you're coming to an understanding that He's not Yahweh, guess what? You're pursuing understanding of Him through intellectualism. It is not through a heart relationship. It is not through revelation of the Ruach HaKodesh. And so in Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11, it says, "...wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Yeshua HaMashiach is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father." How can we translate Philippians two eleven as saying that every tongue will confess that Yeshua is Yahweh? Because Philippians two nine through eleven is a quote and a reference to Isaiah chapter forty-five, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. And what does it say in Isaiah forty five, twenty-two, and twenty-three? It says Yahweh. And here, the writer of Philippians is taking the text in Isaiah 45:22 and 23, applying it to Yeshua, can he do that? Yeah, in the volume of the book it's written of him. Yeshua said the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms speak of him. So Isaiah 45 speaks of him. So every tongue will confess that Yeshua is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Furthermore, when Yeshua ascended to be with his Father, he ascended from the Mount of Olives. It's recorded for us in... Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold... Two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, "You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Yeshua, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Where did he ascend from? Acts 1:12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olives. So Yeshua ascended to be." his father from the Mount of Olives and the angel said he's got to come back in like manner where is it recorded that he comes back in like manner or where is it recorded that he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives it's in Zechariah chapter 14 verses 3 and 4 and verse 3 it says then shall the Hebrew text says Yahweh then shall Yahweh go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle first of all it tells us that Yahweh fought against nations in the day of battle you know what the day of battle is a reference to the day when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his army drowned into the sea that's the day of battle who's the one who drowned Pharaoh and his army in the sea it was by the right hand your right hand O Yahweh has become glorious in power your right hand has dashed in pieces the enemy it says in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 6 so who's the right hand it is the Messiah. So Yahweh, the Messiah, is going to fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. And his feet, whose feet? The feet of yod Vavhe vav that's fighting against the nations in the day of battle. His feet will stand that day upon the Mount of Olives. So therefore, when we're reading in Leviticus 23 that these are the festivals of Yahweh, even my feasts, we need to understand that this is a reference to Yeshua. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. The Torah and the prophets and the Psalms speak of him. These are the festivals of Yeshua. Since I am a believer in Yeshua as the Messiah, and these are his festivals, they should have meaning and relevance to me. The festivals are appointed signs and seasons. Well, to look at this principle of signs and seasons, the sun and the moon in the creation of the heavens and the earth were given for signs and seasons. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, and in verse 16 it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons. This word seasons is the Hebrew word moed. Let them be for appointed seasons. At times, for days and for years. And God made two great lights. Look, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And He made stars also. Now, who is the greater light? It's the Messiah. And notice when it tells us when the greater light's got to rule. He's got to rule in the day. The day. When is the day? It's the Messianic era. That's a prophecy that Messiah will rule in the Messianic era and the lesser light to rule the night. Didn't Messiah say, Occupy until I come? And he made stars also. Didn't Yahweh promise to Abraham that his descendants would be as the stars? So these stars are likened unto the people who are in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. So the sun, the greater light, is a prophetic reference to the Messiah because he is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, then spake Yeshua again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. Okay, what is defined as light? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The Torah is light. And so, if you're going to not walk in darkness, what is darkness? Darkness is sin. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4, transgression of the law. So this is saying, Yeshua is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the living Torah. He that follows me will not disobey Torah, will not walk in darkness. But he will have the light of life. What is the light of life? It says that you choose life or death, obeying the Torah or not. And if you choose the Torah, you're choosing life. So if you choose the Torah, you know who you're choosing? The Messiah, because he's the living Torah. And you will have the light of life. You will have Messiah, and you'll be walking and observing his commandments. So the moon is the lesser light, and the moon is likened unto the people who are in covenant relationship with the God of Israel. The moon is likened to the nation of Israel, it's likened to the house of David, or it's likened unto believers in the Messiah. Psalm 89 in verse 20. I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him. If his children forsake my Torah, if they do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. If they break the Torah, they're going to suffer the consequences. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from them. What's his loving kindness that he won't take from them? The possibility of redemption in Messiah. What's his loving kindness that he will not take from them? The promise that they will be redeemed from the nations where they've been exiled. So even though he's going to discipline them, he will still provide a way of redemption and he ultimately will physically redeem them from the nations where they've been scattered because I will not suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, what covenant? The covenant he made with Abraham, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed, the seed of David, shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon as a faithful witness. So the house of David, the seed of David, is likened unto the moon being a faithful witness in heaven. The people who are in covenant relationship with the God of Israel is likened unto the moon, the lesser light. Messiah said that if we walk in him, the greater light, that we have light, and we're to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven in Matthew in chapter five. Now the scriptures tells us that there's an appointed time and season for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says, To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. Verse 17, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Now, in Deuteronomy in chapter 11, the God of Israel said that if his people would be faithful, to be obedient to him, to obey his voice, and to keep his commandments, that he would give the former and their latter reign in its proper season. Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse eight. Therefore you shall keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land where you go to possess it, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 10, For the land where you go in to possess, it's not as the land of Egypt. You see, when you're a believer in the Messiah and you're walking in his ways, in his kingdom, the principles of his kingdom is not like the land of Egypt. It's not like natural law. It's not like natural reasoning. Because in the world, there is natural cause and effect. If you do certain things right naturally, you'll get certain natural positive effects. And so you work until your hand, you'll get the benefit, the harvest of your toil and your sweat and your working. But the land where you go to possess Deuteronomy eleven eleven. it's a land of hills and valleys. Look, walking with Yeshua and the king, it's hills and it's valleys. You know, there's high points and there's low points. There's hills and valleys. And it drinks water of the rain of heaven. You see, in order to be sustained in the hills and in the valleys, you need water. And so, in order to walk in him, you need blessings from him. So, You drink water from the rain of heaven, which means when you're obedient, you get the blessing. When you're disobedient, you don't get the blessing because you're walking in spiritual law and spiritual principles and you're not walking according to the ways of Egypt, the natural order from where you came out. And so in Deuteronomy 11, verse 13 and 14, it says, It will come to pass, if you will hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil. So what's wine? Being fruitful. What's oil? The anointing. And so he will bless you with goodness and with abundance if you will be faithful unto him to diligently keep his commandments. So the festivals are to be kept in their appointed seasons. These are the feasts of Yahweh, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. Celebrate These things at the appointed time. So Passover is to be kept in its appointed season. Exodus chapter 13 verses 8 through 10. And you shall show your son in that day saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's Torah may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand has the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So because he redeemed you from Egypt, the world's in the world system, his Torah is to be in your mouth. And you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season. What ordinance? Passover. Keep that ordinance in its season from year to year. Numbers chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at the appointed season, the Moed. Verse 3 of Numbers 9. In the 14th day of this month at evening, you shall keep it in the appointed season, in the Moed, according to all the rites and according to all the ceremonies, you shall keep it. And so once again, these appointed times and seasons teach us about the Messiah. And so Passover through Sukkot, tabernacles, is going to teach us about the Messiah. Passover and the biblical festivals are to be celebrated at an appointed place. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 2 and verse 6. You shall therefore sacrifice the Passover under the Lord your God and of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord will choose to place his name. But at the place which the Lord your God shall choose to place his name in, there shall you sacrifice the Passover at evening, at the going down of the sun, at the season that you came forth out of Egypt. So Pentecost, Shavuot, is celebrated at an appointed place. Deuteronomy 16, verses 10 and 11. And you shall keep the feast of weeks, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, unto the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, Which you shall give unto the Lord your God according as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, the Levite that's within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow that are among you, in the place which the Lord your God has chosen to place his name there. Tabernacles is celebrated at an appointed place. Deuteronomy 16, verse 13 and verse 15. Ye shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after you have gathered in your corn and your wine. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast unto the Lord your God in the place which the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your increase and all the works of your hands, therefore you shall surely rejoice. So these things will be done at an appointed place, in the place where he would choose the place's name. Where is that place? That place is Jerusalem. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6. But I've chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Now all Israelite males are commanded to celebrate the festivals in Jerusalem. Three times in a year, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16 says... Shall all your males appear before the Lord your God in the place where He will choose, Jerusalem, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover season, the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost or Shavuot, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. So, why is it that males were specifically commanded to come to the feast? Because males represent headship. And males are to play the role of being priests of their home and to teach the Torah and to teach their family the ways of the God of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day, the words that I command you this day at Mount Sinai, shall be in your heart. The Torah is to be in your heart. And you shall teach these things diligently to your children. When are you going to tell them about the ways of the God of Israel? Well, you're to talk them when you sit down and uh, when you walk and when you lie down and when you rise up. So when are you sitting or walking or lying down or rising up? You're supposed to do it perpetually all the time. Keep teaching your children the ways of the God of Israel. Males represent headship once again. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Messiah is the head of the congregation, and he is the Savior of the body. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So the order of authority is Yeshua is the head of the congregation. Males are supposed to be under the authority of the Messiah. And if the males are under the authority of the Messiah, females are supposed to be under the authority of their husbands, the males. But who are the females really submitted to? If their husbands are submitted to Yeshua, who are they really submitted to? Yeshua. And then the children are to obey their parents, who their parents are obeying Yeshua and His commandment. So everything is in order. Those who live far from Jerusalem are also commanded to celebrate the feasts. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 21. If the place which the Lord your God has chosen to put his name there is too far from thee, then you will kill of your herd and of your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you and you shall eat in your gates whatsoever your soul lusts after. So if it's too far to go to Jerusalem, you're allowed to celebrate the festivals where you are at if it is too far to go to Jerusalem. And when you celebrate, you're not to come and celebrate the feasts and come before Yahweh empty-handed. Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. Three times a year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God in the place where he shall choose in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the Feast of Weeks, in the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able according to his blessing, of the Lord your God which he has given you. So these are harvest festivals and you're supposed to come and bring of your harvest. And you're supposed to come with attitude of thanksgiving unto the God of Israel for what he's given to you. You are to give back to him. Believers in Messiah are to give to the kingdom of the God of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 18. But remember the Lord your God because It's he that gives you power to get wealth. It's not you. It's him that he may establish his covenant which he swore unto his fathers as it is this day. So he's giving you power to get wealth. He's blessing you so that his covenant can be established. Matthew 6 verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Yahweh says you remember me and my kingdom. I will remember you. Believers in Messiah are to give to the kingdom of the God of Israel. This is repeated in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-8. through 8. But I say, he which sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He which sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Every man according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly. Don't give because you're forced to, or the basket goes around and you feel pressured to do it. Or of necessity... But God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Notice by you giving cheerfully that the God of Israel is blessing you in return. Continuing on, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad, he's given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever. That's Psalm 112. Now he that ministers seed to the sower both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causes through us thanksgiving to God. The appointed seasons are for the biblical festivals. Passover is to be celebrated in the first month. Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and Leviticus 23 verse 5 The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. In the fourteenth day at the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. Exodus chapter 13 verse 3 and 4, Moses said unto the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This day came you out in the month of Aviv, and it's referred to today also as Nisan. Pentecost is celebrated 50 days following first fruits. Leviticus 23 verse 15 and you shall count unto you from the morrow after the sabbath from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering seven sabbaths shall be complete you're to count seven complete sabbaths even unto the morrow after the seventh sabbath shall you number 50 days and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the lord Leviticus 23:17 you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals they shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits unto the Lord. Tabernacles is celebrated in the seventh month. Leviticus 23:34. Speak unto the children of Israel saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. The biblical feasts are given to a covenant nation. This is the house of Jacob. There's a literal house of Jacob. There's a redeemed house of Jacob and Messiah. Luke one hundred thirty three, Messiah will rule and reign over a redeemed house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came unto the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 3 of Exodus 19, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. And who was it that came out of Egypt It became a part of the house of Jacob? We're told about a mixed multitude who did so in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. So who is the house of Jacob that's standing at Mount Sinai? They consisted of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also these mixed multitude that we're reading about here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 37 and 38. But wait, how can the mixed multitude, the non-physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how can they become, and how are they part of the house of Jacob? That's because they have the status of being strangers, sojourners. They are adopted, or they are grafted in. And it says in Numbers chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, that one is both for the native-born, the physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also for the stranger or the sojourner. One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation and also for the stranger that sojourns with you. And that there's one ordinance for both the physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the one that is grafted in is an ordinance forever in your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One Torah in one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. Notice this ordinance is how long? Forever. Which begs the question, how long is forever? You know what I was taught in traditional Christianity what forever meant? Until Yeshua died on the tree. And then it all changed. And then that was for them. But we have new commandments that were given to us that are different from what was commanded to them. Uh, but that's not what this says. It says, One Torah is for you, the congregation, and the stranger, and that commandment is forever. And so the covenant that the God of Israel makes with the people known as the house of Jacob included the stranger. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 14. And you shall rejoice in the feast, your son and your daughter, that's the native born, your manservant, maidservant, the Levite, the stranger, and the fatherless and the widow. That is within your gate. So you can see if you're not a native born who is a believer in Yeshua as the Messiah, then you are a stranger. And so these feasts are for you as well. So there is a promise of blessing for keeping the biblical festivals. It says in Exodus thirty four verse twenty three and twenty four Three times a year shall all your men, children, appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders, neither shall any man desire your land when you shall go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. Look. I'm going to defeat your enemies, I will cast out the nations and enlarge your borders. I'm going to defeat your enemies and give you a greater blessing if you will just keep and celebrate my biblical festivals. So once again, an overview of the spring festivals. Passover is the 14th day of the first month from Leviticus 23 verse 5. On the 14th day of the first month, that evening, is the Lord's Passover. And so unleavened bread follows Passover and it's a seven-day festival. Leviticus 23, verse 6. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. You shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation you shall do no servile work. So unleavened bread is in the first month from the fifteenth to the twenty-first day. Then you have the first fruits of the barley harvest, which is the morrow After the Sabbath. Leviticus 23:10 Speak unto the children of Israel and say, When you come into the land which I give you, and you shall reap the harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So, first fruits is the day after the Sabbath, during Unleavened Bread. And that begins a counting of seven complete weeks, which concludes with Shavuot, or the Feast of Pentecost. Leviticus 23.15 And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. So, Pentecost, or Shavuot, is 50 days following first fruits. And these seven weeks of counting is known as the counting of the Omer. Pentecost is the conclusion of Passover. Because the God of Israel said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 verse 12, He said, Certainly I will be with you. This shall be the token that I have sent you. When... Thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. You will serve God on this mountain. He brought them out, and this has got to be the sign. This is the sign that I brought you out of Egypt. You're going to come to Mount Sinai. And so Mount Sinai is the conclusion of the redemption from Egypt. In other words, there's a link and a connection of it and to it. The full coming out of Egypt is going to the promised land. So an overview of the fall festivals. The trumpets or the Yom Teruah, commonly known as Rosh Hashanah, is celebrated in the seventh month. Uh, Leviticus 23:24 24, Speak unto the children of Israel in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. So trumpets is the seventh month, the first day. And the Day of Atonement is the tenth day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23:27 On the tenth day of the seventh month, There shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you. And you shall afflict your souls an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Next is the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the 15th day of the seventh month. Leviticus 23:34. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So Tabernacles begins on the 15th day of? the seventh month goes for seven days but it says in Leviticus 23:39, on the 15th day of the seventh month when you've gathered in the fruit of your land you shall keep a feast on the Lord seven days keep a feast seven days on the first day is a Sabbath and on the eighth day is a Sabbath keep the feast for seven days on the first day is a Sabbath but then on the eighth day is a Sabbath what keep it for seven days and you're talking about the eighth day the eighth day is an extra day that the God of Israel attached to tabernacles known as the eighth conclusion. Shemini, eighth at Zeret conclusion. The rabbis added another day to Shemini at Zeret which they refer to as Simhat Torah which is celebrated on the 23rd day of the seventh month. So not only do we have the annual festivals but we have the... Weekly Sabbath is also a biblical festival. Leviticus 23, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel and say concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. So he's talking about his feasts. Then he talks about the weekly Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. So we have that the weekly Sabbath is one of the ten commandments. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 9 and verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Continuing on, what the Bible refers to as High Sabbath. What is a High Sabbath? It's a special designated Sabbath day by the God of Israel that is separate and distinct from the weekly Sabbath. In Hebrew, a High Sabbath is known as a Shabbaton, and it is the Strong's number 7677. There are seven special designated Sabbath days. Uh, besides the weekly Sabbath that the God of Israel specifies during the biblical year. What are these seven yearly high Sabbaths? The first is the first day of unleavened bread. It's the first month in the 15th day. That is designated as a Sabbath. The last day of unleavened bread, which is the first month in the 21st day, that is designated as a Sabbath. The day of Shavuot or Pentecost, which is 50 days after first fruits, that is a Sabbath. The Day of Trumpets, Yom Teruah, traditionally called Rosh Hashanah, which is the seventh month and the first day. That is a designated Sabbath day. The Day of Atonement, the seventh month and the tenth day. The first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh month and the fifteenth day. And finally, the eighth day that is added to the Feast of Tabernacles, Shemini Atzeret, the seventh month and the twenty second day. All of these are designated Sabbath days by the God of Israel in addition to the weekly Sabbath. They have a special designation they are known as Shabbaton. So therefore it's possible for a weekly Sabbath and a high Sabbath to occur in the same week. The new moon is also a festival and the new moon is known as Rosh Hodesh. There are two primary Hebrew words for moon one of the Hebrew words for moon is Yarik, the Strong's number 3394. Yar is the root of Yarik. It's the same root that is found in the word Jordan, which is Yarden in Hebrew. And Jordan or Yarden means to descend. Another Hebrew word for moon is Levanat, the Strong's word 3842. It means white. Yarik is associated with the descending the dark or the hidden aspect of the moon, Lebanon is associated with the ascending or the bright or the full element or aspect of the moon because the moon goes through cycles of being hidden and then its light is seen again. So, moon in Hebrew means month. The Hebrew word for moon is Yarak. It is the Strong's number 3394. It is associated with the Hebrew word Yarik, which means month. Yarik is the Strong's number 3391. So, moon, which is Yarak in Hebrew, the Strong's number 3394, is associated with Yarik, which is month, or the Strong's number 3391. So we're going to see now how that the biblical calendar is lunar. Rosh Hashanah was the first commandment given to the nation of Israel when they were redeemed from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This day came you out in the month of Aviv, also called Nisan today. And so in Exodus twelve two it says this month it's the Strong's number twenty three twenty it's the Hebrew word hodesh this month shall be unto you the beginning of months there's the word hodesh again it shall be the first month there's the word hodesh of the year to you First Samuel chapter twenty verse five it says and David said unto Jonathan behold tomorrow is the new moon new moon that is. 2320 in the Strongs. It's Hodesh. So in the King James, we have in Exodus chapter 12 verse 2 the word month. Beginning of month and first month is all the same Hebrew word Hodesh, which is translated as new moon in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 5. So we can see that month in biblical calendar is lunar and it's associated with the moon. The sun and the moon were given for signs and seasons as we read earlier. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 there were lights in the heavens for signs and for seasons, days and years. And Genesis 1.16, there's two great light, The greater light, which is the sun to rule the day. The lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. They were given for seasons, moed, for set times, for appointed times. So the moon was given to determine the festivals. Psalm 104, verse 1, 5, and 19. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Yahweh, my Elohim, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. He appointed the moon for seasons, for Moed. The sun knoweth his going down. The moon is for appointed seasons. It determines appointed seasons. So in looking at the biblical calendar, the main purpose of the biblical calendar is to set the date for the festivals. The ancient biblical calendar was a lunar calendar. During the time of Yeshua, the regulation of the calendar was the exclusive right of the biblical court known as the Sanhedrin. Each new moon called Rosh Hodesh, the head of the month in Hebrew, was determined by the visual sighting of two witnesses who would testify that they saw the new moon to the Sanhedrin. From the testimony of the two witnesses, the Sanhedrin would declare that the new moon had begun. Each biblical festival could not be determined before the arrival of the month in which it was to be held. In the first century, the Sanhedrin consisted of 71 judges who met in the chamber of the hewn stone in the temple. The Sanhedrin was overseen by the president known as the Nasi, which means a banner or a high standard. Binding and loosing referred to the judicial actions taken by the Sanhedrin. In order to communicate that the new moon had begun to those who lived in distant places, the Sanhedrin would light a fire from a mountaintop. In turn, additional fires were lit from mountaintop to mountaintop. However, the Samaritans and other peoples would also light fires several days before and following the expected day of the new moon to confuse the people of the God of Israel. Because of this problem, the sighting of the new moon started to become communicated to people in distant lands by means of messengers. This change was introduced by Judah Hanasi in about 135 to 200 of the common era. So through complication of persecution by the Romans, the declaration of the new moon by the Sanhedrin no longer became possible. As a result, Hillel II, around 358 in the Common Era, introduced a calendar to determine each month based upon a mathematical calculation. This present exile, which is used today by the Jewish people, is based upon a mathematical calculation and it should be seen as an exile calendar. The determination of the new moon based upon the present mathematical calculation will no longer be done during the Messianic era but then it will be done according to the days of old. So in Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 the God of Israel said declare Aviv to be the beginning of months. It's also referred to as Nisan today. And the names that are commonly used for biblical months are of Babylonian origin. The names that are used by the Jewish people for the biblical months are Babylonian names. Why did the rabbis maintain the Babylonian names? Because he wanted the people to remember that they're still in exile so they kept the Babylonian names as a reminder that they're still in exile and to anticipate and to await for the redemption so because the God of Israel said in Exodus chapter 12 that Aviv would be the beginning of month that from Exodus chapter 12 through the rest of the Bible in the book of Revelation you're going to use Aviv being the first month of the year this is referred to as the religious calendar prior to Exodus chapter 12 you have what is known as the civil calendar So looking at the biblical calendar we have what is called a religious calendar which was set up by the God of Israel and the first month in the religious calendar is Aviv or Nisan and the twelfth month is Adar. But in the civil calendar the first month is Tishrei. So on the religious calendar Tishrei is the seventh month but on the civil calendar it is the first month. So when you're trying to understand these things you need to understand the distinction between the religious and the civil calendar so this is going to conclude our teaching on the uh, introduction to the festivals we need to recognize and understand that these festivals are festivals of the god of israel that are fulfilled by the messiah the spring festivals teach about his first coming the fall festivals teach about his second coming The festivals teach about our personal relationship with Messiah. We come out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world, the world system. We put the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost. That's accepting Yeshua in our hearts and our lives. But then we pass through the sea. We are baptized. We are immersed in Messiah. And we go to Mount Sinai to keep his commandments. And the God of Israel has a purpose for each and every one of our lives. And it gets fulfilled when we obey the God of Israel, walk in his commandments and he takes us to our spiritual promised land. And so uh, I pray that uh, this introduction to the festivals has been a blessing to you. We will continue our studies in the biblical festivals in the following weeks. So may uh, everybody be blessed in the teaching which they have received from this lesson. In Yeshua's name, amen.